You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here and I'm delighted to welcome you for the second, is this very echoey? It feels very echoey to me. It's not? It's all, it's all right in the audience, the sound? This is the second in our series of art and philosophy talks, which I started last year with David Morris talking about phenomenology and Patterson Ewan, and it was wonderful, and it's on our website as a podcast if anybody wants to listen to it. It just feels to me as if art and philosophy just fit together so well. I was a bit inspired by some programming I saw at the Tate. So for our second evening of this, which we will continue, by the way, we have David Chiavata, who's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Ryerson University, Toronto, where he teaches seminars in existentialism, phenomenology, and the philosophy of art. And he's going to talk to you about Baudouin and uh, existentialism. So, and he was in the audience for the last one. So if there are any philosophers in this audience, please speak to me afterwards. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, thank you to Jillian for inviting me and, and for, uh, for organizing this. Um, I also wanted to thank the AGO and the Thompson Collection in particular for, uh, for the use of these images. And I also have some images from the, from the National Gallery. So I, I think, uh, I think uh, the, um, the Rights Bureau or whatever from the National Gallery. Um, I, I just, before I, I uh, get into the talk, I just wanted to give a little bit of background. Um, uh, you know, I, Bourdieu's paintings are are um, exciting and and uh, vibrant and um, uh, you know they sort of carry a very profound presence to them and, and uh, I think I think that's that's pretty easy to to appreciate um, but but talking about them and understanding them or I don't know getting sort of a, um, building a vocabulary to to uh, help help navigate your way through them I think is is more challenging and. So, so this paper or this talk is is an effort to just provide some some vocabulary, I guess, some ideas that that uh, I think these these uh, paintings help to uh, that that ideas will help to get inside the paintings a little more deeply. And uh, in particular, is my work on existentialism and thinking about existentialist and phenomenological philosophies over the years. Um, I, I felt that 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 background gave me especially rich uh, resources for for getting into these paintings. And so um, my, my intention just generally is to, to bring some of the central theses or some, yeah, some of the central theses of existentialism to bear in, in understanding uh, some of these paintings. And you know, I, I, I don't claim to exhaust them or to fully interpret them. I mostly am happy to just raise some questions and, and uh, uh, maybe uh, have some discussion about them. So I'll, I'll uh, sort of go in between reading and um, chatting through. Um, I, I did want to start by just saying that I, I think my main focus really is, is on uh, Bourdieu's later paintings. And um, I, I've taken images primarily from, uh, from the AGO collection here. There's a couple that, I, as I said, were coming from elsewhere, but um, 
from the National Gallery, but I, I did want to focus on things that are up on the walls here in the city, in, in, this, in the AGO in particular. Um, and I think, I think the AGO's collection is pretty emblematic of the different various uh, movements or, or, I don't know, forms that, that uh, Bordeaux's painting took. And uh, so, so uh, these, these images in particular, these several that I'm showing right now, are, are, all, are all up, um, and uh, those, those are gonna be my focus. And I'm gonna especially focus on the series, sometimes known as the black and white series, which uh, look a bit like this. Um, this one has uh, some brown in it, obviously, but uh, that, that's um, not necessarily the norm. Uh, this one is up currently, and uh, it's, it's, it's a great painting, um, and I'll probably uh, focus on that most of all in the end. And that one is also currently up in the Bordeaux room. If you're interested in any of the titles, I, I have them all uh, with me. You can ask me about those. Maybe I'll just go back to this for the opening discussion. To see one of Bordeaux's late paintings is to enter into a sort of living turbulence. It is to find oneself, to find one's body, in the midst of a field of multiple diverging flows and vectors that never quite resolve themselves into, determinate individual, uh, into a determinate individual or form. Whatever internal lineaments and boundary lines are demarcated in the folds of the paint are never settled once and for all, but appear to a large extent as the inc incidental transitory effects of a more subterranean movement that is still in the process of coming to terms with itself. This turbulence springs above all from the fact that these paintings are clearly events in the midst of happening. Far from being over and done with, they are happening right now before our eyes. To view them is to be thrown into an event, to experience the world in and through the movement and the striving that animates them. Of course, the event of applying paint is over and done with. The fluid paint has dried, hardened, and is now rigid as bone. Where once the paint's living viscosity and elasticity drew the artist's hand into the rhythm of its flow, a sort of rigor mortis has set in. The paint has stiffened into its final act, its final gesture, much as a corpse stiffens into whatever posture it assumed in the hours after death. And no doubt, we cannot engage Bordeaux's paintings without failing to experience something of the ghost of this living hand, and so something of this rigor mortis, this over and doneness of what was once a vital event of painting. Any painterly gesture that draws attention to its living flow as an event of painting, any gesture that attempts to capture the fleeting present of the moment of its coming to be, is bound in this way to become a sort of memorial to something forever past, to something to which we can no longer have access. And sometimes you feel that when you're looking at one of Jackson Pollock's drip paintings, uh, that, that you have this sense that the event is over. You're just seeing the trace of something that happened independently of the painting, and that the painting is sort of a memorial to that. The paint as trace of the hand that applied it carries something that, of that event of its birth, something of its eventfulness, but the trace comes into existence only once the event is over. 
and so also has the effect of sealing that event in its tomb once and for all. But there is so little of that memorial quality in Bourdois' paintings, it seems to me, so little of the fossil. The sheer vitality of these paintings leaves little room for any sort of mourning over the loss of some unique painterly event that can never happen again. We tend not to find in Bourdois traces of the sort of assertive lyrical gesture lines, gestural lines, that we find in some of de Kooning's or Klein's action paintings, for instance. You know, I'm thinking of those very lyrical, continuous flows of paint uh, that you often find in, in Klein or de Kooning. There's too much of the impersonal trowel in Bourdois, too much evidence of layers worked over again and again to feel that there was some single momentous event of inspired declaration that is being memorialized here. The paint is spread rather than applied with the articulate tip of a brush, for instance. And so whatever lines appear are not so much the signatures of a self-consciously expressive act as the indirect functions of the impersonal, somewhat blind flows that are interrupted as they meet with the resistance of other such flows. Indeed, the painting seems to respond to nothing outside of itself, whether this outside be some single act of creation in the past or some objective figure or object that limits where the paint ought to go. The paint flows can be limited only by other such flows existing in the same imminent plane. These impersonal flows and their encounters are more suggestive of a process that cannot be fully harnessed by a human hand or fully integrated into a clear expressive intention that would govern over them. As a result, they seem to implicate us in a process that may not have, ha that may not have any determinate end, that may never resolve itself into something specific. To enter into one of Bourdois' paintings is precisely to enter into such an open-ended movement, and thereby to find oneself thrown forward toward an uncertain future that has yet to fully take shape. We might capture this quality of open-endedness, this sense of futurity, by saying that there is something radically, radically incomplete about these paintings. They are not incomplete in the sense that Bourdois stopped short of finishing them, that he abandoned them prematurely. Indeed, we often have the sense, particularly with some of the black and white paintings, that every flow of paint and every fold makes a vital contribution within the fragile play of forces that the painting set in motion. In that sense, they achieve a poignancy that is quite complete, quite resolute, quite accomplished, in discussing what he calls super-rational automatism, Bourdois speaks of the artist as seeking after the, quote, feeling of the impossibility of going further without destruction, end of quote. And it seems clear that this was a standard to which he held his own painting. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do if you have a chance to see this particular painting, and uh, I think you can do this with others as well, may maybe you can do that uh, in, in this dark auditorium with a slide, but uh, I'm not sure. Um, I find myself, when I'm looking at these paintings, I just cover over patches of them, sort of, I, I sort of see parts of them, and that tells me what's missing and what each part does, or it tells me something about what each part does, because I notice its absence. Um, and I find that if I cover over any of the, the black patterns, so there's this central black figure here in the middle, but if I, with my, if, 
I cover over with my hand any of the remaining uh, sort of bordering black figures, I really feel like the central figure sort of starts to float away, especially if I move away this one or that one. It really feels like the central figure starts to open up and that it, uh, uh, it starts to move off the canvas. And, and appreciating relationships like that really do suggest that there is something of an overall harmony to the piece. And, and you know, it's hard to identify and, and, and put your finger on, but, but there is some sort of sense of balance in the piece that would be disrupted. And, and that, that suggests that there is something um, complete. There's some, there's some sort of resolution that has taken place in the painting. Now, what I'll go on to suggest is that that's, that's only part of the story. But that is a level at which these paintings seem to work, it seems to me. So despite that, that sense of completeness, Bordeaux also seems to have regarded it as the mark of a successful painting that it actively resists giving itself over to a clear and precise unity. It is precisely when a painting provokes in us a sense of manifold and boundless movement, precisely when it announces something that cannot be completed or captured in any straightforward way, that it is complete that it is worth keeping. Bourdois sees this distinctive sort of fragile dynamism as one of the central goals of his later paintings and admits that he cannot simply make it happen on command, that it must to some extent come of itself. As Bourdois wrote, presumably in reference to his black and white paintings, here's the quote, oops. Though these pictures have become whiter and whiter, more and more objective, they nevertheless seem complex when I see around me works with a clear and precise meaning, whether expressionistic or gestural. Only the paintings which escape me are kept. If by chance one should come with a clear and easy meaning, it quickly becomes unbearable. My only worthwhile judgments in the face of my own work rely on the vertigo of an essentially emotional recognition provoked by the sensation of an abundant synthesis. This vertigo in the face of an abundant synthesis is, I have been suggesting, comparable to the experience of being caught up in, event, in an event that is still underway, an event whose underlying forces and boundaries and inner articulations are not yet fully determined. It seems to be characteristic of the nature of events that one cannot get a total handle on them until they are over, until they have become things of the past that we can look back upon from afar. While one is in the midst of an event, however, it is hard to say exactly what is happening, hard to separate what is essential from what is accidental or marginal, hard to know what aspects are going to be the most salient in the end. I think it is this space of the event in the midst of happening, this vertiginous space of the yet to be determined, that Bourdois' late paintings put us in touch with. It is above all this sense of being caught up in the eventfulness of movements that escape our conscious grasp that makes for a rich point of contact between Bourdieu's late work and 20th century existentialist philosophy. For existentialist thinkers such as Martin Heidegger, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Maurice Merleau-Ponty, the nature of human existence is such that it perpetually exceeds our own grasp, perpetually escapes us. Heidegger famously characterized human existence as an ecstatic event, in the sense that we are always, al always already outside ourselves, always already find ourselves embroiled in the living thick of things, with the result that we can never get fully behind ourselves and our situations so as to consciously size them up before we make our next move. 
we find ourselves already implicated in things that have multiple directions and meanings of their own. And there is no pause button that would enable us to freeze the flow of time so as to enable us to examine our situation from all angles before we decide what to do. Moreover, we are always already acting in some way or other, already living out of decisions and meanings that we and others have already settled on, and so are never afforded a totally clean slate from which we can make a radically new start. Even stopping to reflect on things is a concrete way of responding whose full significance may exceed our immediate intentions. I'm thinking of a, a case where, you know, perhaps a lover asks you whether you love them and uh, you stop and think about it. That, um, there, you know, that's an obvious way in which your, your reflection is a, a part of reality and, and speaks uh, whether, whether you uh, intend it or not. Um, in any case, it seems that in principle we would need infinite time and infinite knowledge to fully grasp our situations. Not only is such an infinite perspective never afforded to us, but the very appeal to such an absolute, wholly objective perspective, a perspective from the point of view of which everything is transparent and can be fully sorted out, a perspective that is not itself embroiled in any specific situation. That, that um, appeal to such an absolute perspective is, from the existentialist point of view, merely a kind of coping mechanism, a kind of idealized fantasy that we generate as a way of alleviating the sense of abandonment we experience in the face of the inescapable indeterminacy of living. In fact, like Bourdois, Sartre too famously spoke of a kind of vertigo, a kind of groundlessness that we cannot fail to experience in the face of the inherent indeterminacy and ambiguity of our situation. Some of you may know uh, Sartre's uh, discussion of a person reaching the the tip of a precipice and, and uh, experiencing vertigo, and Cart, uh, Sartre argues that the sense of vertigo comes not from the fear of falling, but from the fear of uh, that, the f that, some, that the future, uh, that the person's future self might decide to throw himself off. And so it's, it's not a fear of dying or a fear of you know, the wind blowing you down, but it's a fear that, um, or it's a, it's a sense that despite whatever I do now, I'm involved in a situation that has a future that I can't control, namely uh, a future in which I still have to make further decisions and which will have a bearing on the significance of what I'm doing right now. So I might resolutely decide to be safe as I cross the path, but I, I can't guarantee for sure that uh, who, I, who, who I'll be in 30 seconds will keep to that promise. And so that's th th just the realization that that is an open-ended, indeterminate situation uh, an indeterminacy that springs from my own, uh, my, you know, my, the fact that I'm here now and not already over there, and yet I'm going to be that person over there in the future, um, is uh, crucial to Sartre's conception of freedom and to his conception of human existence. And that's the sense of vertigo, and that's the, the experience of freedom for, for Sartre. For Sartre, it is, is this precisely this existential vertigo that we try to avoid by imagining ourselves on the firm ground of a reality that is in principle fully determinate and clear, a wholly unified objective totality. This is reality as it would appear to a transcendent God or to some sort of absolute subjectivity that had all the angles covered. Whereas our vertigo reminds us that when we are being totally honest with ourselves and take full responsibility for our finitude, we can have no recourse to such an, a transcendental perspective. 
So one of the central goals of existentialist philosophy is to expose the illusory character of our appeal to such, transparent, uh, to such a transparent objective domain, as well as to this sort of transcendent perspective that stands beyond the world, serenely free of all situatedness in the eventful here and now. Indeed, the challenge of living is to find meaning and value, and indeed to find beauty, precisely in the face of the inherent incompleteness and indeterminacy of existence. It is, in short, to affirm rather than shy away from this vertigo at the core of our lives, to be enlivened by it, to reconcile ourselves to a reality that is at bottom irreconcilable with itself. We can identify the spirit of this same project in Bourdieu's paintings, and I think in this respect it is quite appropriate to consider Bourdieu an existentialist. Along with many of the abstract painters of his generation, I'm thinking here not only of the Montreal automatists, but also of the abstract expressionists and the French Tachisme movement, Bourdieu found himself engaged by the basic problem of exploring what is left for painting to do in the face of what we might call the death of the object. That is, if painting is no longer to paint the familiar objects of the natural and social worlds, if indeed the status of these objects as offering us the promise of a clear and complete grasp of reality is itself in question, what is left for it to paint? I think it's fru fruitful to think of this peculiarly painterly problem as intimately linked with the existential problem of how to live in the face of the vertigo of a reality that cannot be readily carved up into clear and distinct objective things and their intelligible relations. So in what follows in the next few sections, I'll highlight a few of the key ways in which Bourdieu's late paintings respond to the call to question the primacy of objective figuration in painting. And in each case, I try to draw some specific links between Bourdieu's approach and certain specific features of the existentialist's attempt to put us back in touch with this ambiguity and indeterminacy of human existence. So um, I'm going to talk through a few things here. Really, this, this first section, which, which I'm, uh, we, can, we can call White Ground, uh, which is also the name of this painting, um, is I, I really want to take my cues from this painting. This is from 1956. Um, and then these white and black paintings, black and white paintings, which also uh, share the same uh, sense of uh, the same the same idea of a white ground, but one that has been worked over with the palette knife in these ways. And then there's this one, which is very thickly applied. So it's really it's really these paintings that I'm trying to just um, think about in this particular section. Although some of what I'll say also applies to paintings like this, which which in my mind are quite different, but there's some similar features. Um, so the, the, the thing uh, that I, I'm trying to understand in this section is um, what the, the white, thickly applied paint does. Um, in, in, the, in the first painting I showed you in this series, you know, Bourdieu identifies it as, as the ground. You know, the, it, the white provides a ground, um, a background. And, and um, it, it's always struck me, you know, over the years looking at these paintings, that there's something very powerful about the idea of a white background that's painted this way. And I'm not sure I can quite put my finger on it, but I, I did have some thoughts about it, especially in response to some of the thoughts about existentialism that I mentioned earlier. 
So a couple features just to notice off the bat is um, when you look at these paintings, you, you really get the sense that there's no canvas or that the canvas has disappeared. There, there's no sense of the presence of the texture of the canvas. Um, there's, there's no sense of uh, the, the white of the canvas itself showing through. The whole, the whole surface of the painting is thickly applied paint. And um, so there's, there, the, there's no sense of uh, a, a starting point that, that is free from the, you know, the human touch. So there's, some, there's something of that in there. Um, I guess that's the basic feature. You know, I, I was going to get into figure background stuff, but I, I think I'll save that to later. Uh, mostly, it's just that, that sense that everything has been worked over that, that I, I, it seems to me quite impressive. Um, it, it really feels like you're in the thick of things. You know, this is a background. It's a starting, you know, imagine this is the background of a painting, <laughs> that, uh, the foreground of which doesn't yet exist. You know, it's the white ground. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a starting point that has already been very shaped and very mediated by, by human actions, by colors. And so uh, you don't really get the sense of you're starting with a clean slate. You know, you, you, don't, you get the sense that you're starting very much in the middle of things. Um, the the uh, one thing about a, a you know a clear a clear white canvas is that th there's a sense in which you know because the surface is uniform there's a sense in which you, you feel like you get it all at once and and uh, you know you just look at it and you, you you quickly purvey it and notice that it's all the same and there's there's nothing more to see but here it feels like it takes time to work your way through the background um, you, you're, there's sort of footholds already prepared for you you know if you if you still imagine yourself in the position of still having to paint uh, on this white background. Uh, it, you get the sense that you have to respond to directions that are already at play, and you have to uh, creatively take up things that are already working themselves out. And I think that's the situation that existentialism uh, wants, to, wants to stress that we're in. You know, we, we never start from a ground zero or from a clear slate. We're always in the position of being thrown into a situation where decisions have already been made. Uh, some of some by ourselves, some by others, and and so our, our decisions are are never wholly fresh starts, but we're always negotiating boundaries and and limits that others and and the, that our, our own past has set on us, and I think that's to me that's that's one of the things that really I, I find really quite powerful about this. I, I noticed that after spending some time looking at Bourdieu's paintings that when I do go and look at a painting where the white of the canvas is showing, there's something very relaxing about it. There's something very soothing about it, as though I, I could rest there. There's a sense of uh, uh, a kind of um, ability to just let go and not worry about where, where you are and how you're situated. But when I, when I see these paintings, I, uh, and I'm focusing on the white background, it really does give me the sense that I have to be constantly negotiating and, and wondering, and I'm constantly being thrown into this and that movement. So I, I just find that a very powerful um, thing to notice about, about these, as, just as a starting uh, uh, point about them. Um, one of the things that, that also appears to me as relevant to understanding the white background is that there, there might be a sense in which you might, you might think of the white canvas as, in some sense, pure, unmarked, untouched. And that's, that's often how we think of nature. You know, we, we, we project this idea of a, a natural world that pre-exists anything that we've done to it. And, and we still feel like we want to contact that world. We still feel like we want to um, use that as a foundation for making certain claims about human life. You know, this is a natural way to be and so on. Um, 
And, and it seems like existentialism really uh, tries to, to get us to see that, that that sense of a natural purity that somehow pre-exists our, our current cultural involvements and so on is, is a little bit like the myth I was talking about earlier of, of some sort of like untrammeled, uh, purely untouched reality that we can somehow get access to. And then the existentialist view, on the contrary, reality is completely touched. It's completely worked over. And, and in a way, the only reality that ever makes sense to us is a reality that uh, we engage with in the midst of our practical lives. Um, Sartre has this uh, interesting line. Uh, some of you uh, may, may know this from being in nothingness. Uh, this comes as a, uh, uh, in the context of a discussion of how humans shape the world that, that we exist in. And he says, it is not man who destroys his cities through the agency of earthquakes or directly, or destroys, I'm sorry, it is man. <laughs> Let me say that over. It is man who destroys, it is man who destroys his cities through the agency of earthquakes or directly, who destroys his ships through the agency of cyclones or directly. So, so Sardis here saying, you know, earthquakes don't destroy cities um, in, any, in any sort of straightforward way. It's, it's precisely because we invest ourselves in cities, we invest ourselves in building buildings and maintaining them, and, and that we, we keep open this space through our actions and our ongoing commitments that there could be something to be destroyed. And so the earthquake's action, yes, it's not something that we planned or, or whatever, it's not, our act, it's not our responsibility in that sense, but there would be nothing to destroy. There would be no such thing as a destruction, really, um, were, were, it, were it not for our investment and our commitments. Um, so Sartre, Sartre contrasts uh, you know, uh, this kind of sense of destruction to what, what the world might be like without us in it and talks about how, from the point of view of um, such a world, you know, the destruction of a city would, would be kind of like matter just reorganizing itself. You know, the blocks are in this form in one instance, pre-cyclone or pre-hurricane, and, and then matter just changes and assumes a different form, but nothing really changed. All, all that was present prior to the storm is still present after the storm. And so a change didn't really take place. Uh, but obviously, if, if you've ever seen a destroyed building or a burnt out building, you, you, you know, we can't help uh, uh, experiencing it as something lost. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a negation that has taken place. And the negation, uh, in, it's real. It's a real part of the world. But it's also a part of the world that wouldn't be able to exist were it not for the commitments that we uh, have in the practical life that we live such that we imbue this building with a kind of integrity that can be destroyed. So we are the site, our lives are the site where events happen, where events like destruction happen, where, where something can turn around and change into something else. And um, I, I think that draws attention to the fact that our experiences, our, our, our lives are not these uh, blank slates, uh, using that phrase in different ways, uh, but you know, our experiences are not just these blank slates where, where things happen. We actively carry around concerns and practical uh, commitments in relation to which alone things happen. And I think the, the white ground of these paintings speaks of that to some extent. I, I feel like there's a sense in which the, the sense of the worked over quality of these grounds, um, there's a sense that uh, what, what can happen is going to be happening in terms of various decisions and commitments that we ourselves have. It's, it's not a matter of um, some sort of 
natural event or, or natural space, uh, nothing can happen in that space, sort of like in the city destruction example where there's no perspective, there's no, there's no uh, perspective for whom the thing matters. So I feel like insofar as the white canvas, the blank canvas, the unpainted canvas bespeaks a kind of imp a pure, uh, pristine presence, these bespeak you know, the reality of what, what it's like to be human. So that's, that's my fumbling little attempt to, to make it th through that, that set of concerns. And I want to I go from there to talk uh, a little bit about uh, a cluster of three different issues that come up as we, as we think about abstract painting in general. So these, these issues I'm, I'm thinking of, on the one hand, is the, the gradual movement towards uh, getting away from painting objects or, or d distinct figures. Um, with that, the movement away from any sense of objective space, uh, a space that's appropriate to such objects. And eventually, I think, with Bourdois, there's also a, a desire to move away from something like the figure background structure altogether. And so I want to just show you a series of paintings. Oh, this is this art quote. I forgot that I had it up there. Okay. So this is an early painting of Bourdois. Very, very, um, you know, sort of Cezanne-like still life. This is from 19... Uh, is from 1941. I'm just, I'm just going to go through a series of paintings that are all Bourdois and that show a nice, in a nice way just um, how, how uh, sort of steps towards greater abstraction, I guess, basically is what the theme is here. And so this is a, a woman with um, jewelry from 1945. And here you're starting to see, you know, the, 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 the white... Um, I assume it's some sort of jewelry, but the white uh, uh, contour of her of her outfit uh, it kind of starts to take on a presence of its own here. You know, we sort you sort of get the sense that uh, we're, you know this is still a painting of a woman uh, wearing a, a jewel, but but uh, the the formal relationships are are you know the the sort of geometrical relationships are starting to assert themselves in a way that take away from the presence of the figure. And here, in this one, we're moving much more obviously to a kind of, you know, something vaguely like a, uh, almost like a cubist kind of abstraction. Um, this is from 1942, so it's not, they're not all in order of time, but um, this is just called abstraction. But so now we're, we're starting to get into figures that aren't, are unnatural, you know, figures that you don't find in the world, and there's sort of an exploration of different spatial relationships and so on. And then with this, we're getting more deeply into abstraction. This is from 1951. And then a similar sort of painting from 1950 called The Circular Pass, also called The Nest of Aeroplanes. And then moving one step further, towards abstraction, and I sort of feel like the space has really uh, thinned out here, whereas in this former painting, there's still some sense of a kind of three-dimensional presence to this figure. Uh, we're starting to get into sort of much more flattened space here. 
and then we're getting into the full canvases of this kind of thing. Um, this is called The Shields from 1953, and then getting into the black and whites. Now, um, it might seem like the black and white paintings are sort of the paintings that Bourdois tended to focus on in the, le the last couple of years of his painting career, uh, last couple of years of his life, um, that, that they reintroduce some sort of uh, set figures. And, and, and so was, there's maybe even a step backward in that, in that series of abstraction that I was talking about. Because you know, there's, there's actual recognizable shapes there. And, and uh, uh, there doesn't seem to be that sort of formlessness that is characteristic of, of this kind of work, for instance. But I, I do want to suggest tentatively that in my mind, these black and white paintings actually take one step further um, in, into abstraction. Uh, and, and in particular, and, and I feel that although there is a sort of obvious sense in which a kind of figure background relationship is maintained here, um, it's an, it, a deeper look suggests that precisely what's being challenged here is, is a kind of uh, the, the dominance of the figure background structure. So I, I want to come back to that. I wanted to talk about just a couple of things uh, along the way, getting, getting to there. It seems to be that in a painting like this, um, I just want you to notice that there's still a very strong figure background structure. Um, the, 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 the outside layers of the paint, uh, of the painting rather, are, are quite f flat. And then, and then there's this sort of profusion of paint in the middle that, that really comes to the fore. And, and uh, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to, to see the back as anything but a kind of background, as a kind of uh, something that is sort of setting up and featuring a thing in front of it. Um, it's, it's not any sort of recognizable spatial relationship. It's not the sort of spatial relationship that you'd find you know, in, in the natural world. Um, but there is a definite sense of there's something behind that recedes and something uh, in the front that comes to the fore. And when you're, when you're talking about, well, even objects, even a painting like this, which were, you know, the, the, um, the object is not a recognizable object in any straightforward sense, and there's a certain flatness to the image, there still is a sense in which there's something preserved of a kind of, of, of objective space, you know? So, so I don't know if this is an arm or, or what, and, and you know, it's probably not anything in particular, but it still has a very sort of round, you, you sort of get a sense of depth, even though that there's a general flatness to the painting, there is a sense in which that, that uh, the, the nature of the body depicted creates a sense of objective depth. And one of the things that uh, it seems to, to suggest is that visually, although it's illusionistic, there is a sense in which you can walk around and look at the back of it, or at least look at it from the side. So I, I wanted to, to explore that idea, because it seems to me that that's the thing that starts to go missing, with, especially with the black and white paintings. There is no side. There is no sense of a roundness. There is no sense of something standing out in the foreground which takes its place in objective space. So let me just talk, talk a little bit through some of these issues to, to fill out these ideas. Both Sartre and Merleau-Ponty placed a lot of weight on the figure and background structure. And notice that all of our perceptions 
seem to operate with some basic figure background structure, especially visual perception. It's at least, it's at least especially easy to see in visual perception. And I encourage you to just consider this about your own experience for the moment. If you're looking at me or looking at the, the, uh, the Bordeaux painting or whatever else you're looking at, your cell phone or something, um, uh, whenever you focus on something, it, there is a sense in which everything recedes. And there's a sense in which a kind of stage is set up. And that just seems like something that your experience does, or that seems like a basic structure of the form of experience. And to the extent that you can recognize a determinate figure, it does seem like uh, there, there is a way in which, even, even if the figure is very far away from you, even if you're focusing on something quite, quite distant from you, and, 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 uh, and if there are a lot of things in between you and that object, there is a way in which it's highlighted. It's, you know, there's a sort of aura around it. It has a kind of presence to it. And um, it's, I mean, it's really interesting that we carve up our world that way. You know, I mean, we take it for granted. It seems like the most obvious thing in the world. But when you stop to think about it, it's quite, it's quite fascinating. Like, I can focus on that exit sign at the back of the room, and it, it sort of becomes the center of my world. And everything else uh, basically is suspended or something like that. It's, it's almost like it's out of play. And that shines forth and it, it, has the, it, it sticks out as having this sort of full presence to my, to my, in my mind. Now one of the reasons why, one of the features of this structure that both Merleau-Ponty and Sartre wanted to draw attention to is that achieving that, uh, that sense of figure on a background is something that, that develops over time and, and that in, in our data, like we take it for granted and we act like things are just waiting for us uh, to see them. But, but really, experience goes through various stages where uh, sometimes you might be confused and not, not know what you're seeing and then suddenly the figure uh, appears. And both Merleau-Ponty and Sartre were interested in that, that process whereby the thing comes to appear eventually. And, and that, because that's a real part of our experience. We, we, we don't like it, it's an unsettling part of our experience perhaps. Um, and it's hard to make sense of because things are fundamentally ambiguous and, and indeterminate in that space. Uh, but, but there is a sense in which that is a real part of, of what it is to be an experiencing person, is to, is to know what it's like to experience that tension where, where a figure hasn't fully settled on a background. Now, so Merleau-Ponty, for instance, has, has some really nice examples to, to discuss how this process takes place. And uh, uh, one of his examples involves walking down a beach and seeing in the distance uh, uh, some trees. And then behind the trees, there, there are these um, uh, forms that initially he can't make sense of. They seem to blend with the trees, but they also seem to suggest that they might be part of something else, but he can't really make sense of it. And then as he gets closer, he gradually realizes that they're, they're, they're the masts of a ship, and it sort of crystallizes and the, ex the experience become clear. But in a way, Merleau-Ponty's interest is in the, in part, is in, the, in that prior moment where before it became clear, and what are we seeing and what are we engaged in? And, and he, he, con he considers it to be a kind of process where we're at some level alive to attention. And we can't, we can't specify fully what that tension is. We can't say, oh, there's a, there's a mask that I'm not quite seeing yet, because that's precisely the thing that hasn't yet come into resolution. We just know that our, our visible sphere is announcing that there's something that needs to work itself out, and we experience that viscerally. So he, he says, for instance, um, as I approached, I did not perceive resemblances or proximities which finally came together 
to form a continuous picture of the upper part of the ship. I merely felt that the look of the object was on the point of altering, that something was imminent in this tension, as a storm is imminent in storm clouds. Suddenly, the sight before me was recast in a manner satisfying to my vague expect expectation. So he's drawing attention to that, that sense of there's a vague expectation. I can't even say what I'm expecting, but I know that something's unsettled, and, and I'm oriented towards clarifying it. In another example, and I'm sure you've done this before, if you hold your finger or a pen up close to your face and you're looking far away, uh, you're, you see double. You know, your, your finger appears, you, you, you see it as though there were two fingers. And, and somehow your eyes just know to, to how to fix that, right? They sense a tension. They, they sense that that's not the way uh, things really are or that's not the way... Uh, that, that they, you know, there's, there's some sort of resolution that needs to be made. And so your eyes just know how to focus such that they no longer look in the back, you know, at, at, in the distance and they focus back on your finger. And that gives you a sense that there too, there's a sort of hovering image and it's not quite clear that the, the two fingers that you see are, you know, it's not like you take them to be two fingers out in the world. More, more, it's more the case that you're in this ambiguous space where you're not quite sure what to make of it. You know, it's, it feels strange, it feels like something is in need of resolution, and, and unconsciously, or you know, through, through your own uh, bodily mechanism, you, you know how to uh, uh, bring this to a resolution with your, with your, uh, by focus. And one other example, just to focus on this figure background structure one more time, um, Sartre famous, has a famous example of looking for his friend in the cafe. So he's late meeting his friend, and he gets to the cafe, and he's looking through the whole cafe, and, and he describes his experience quite eloquently. Uh, he, he, he says his experiences of looking for something in particular, of, of his particular friend. And so, so he looks at the various things in the cafe, the various people in the cafe, but there's a certain sense in which he's not seeing them, right? So he's, he's, he's in the business of looking for Pierre, his friend, and so he looks at the various faces, and they, they appear to him just a, a, so long as to say they're not Pierre, and then they sort of pass into the background, and he's on to the next face. It's, it's not as though he has taken a sort of full stock of all the positive presences in the cafe. Um, rather, he's, he's over and over again seeking Pierre and, and constantly seeing not Pierre. Like, he might not even notice the particular person that he's looking at. The only thing he notices about them is that they're not Pierre. And so there's a way in which you could see, uh, but also not see, or, or see uh, and, and leave out a lot, because the thing you're looking at is, is perceived as a background. You're looking for a figure, uh, and the world that you take up is, is, presents you with the absence of that figure. And so your experience is of an absence, or your experience is of, of, a, of a tension. Uh, again, some, some, you know, there, there's something that is seeking towards a resolution to, around the particular figure, and it doesn't quite get there. The reason I'm dwelling on this is just to, to uh, highlight the fact that experience does involve this experience of tension, this, this, this sense of indeterminacy and, and lack of resolve. And we tend to find some sort of comfort and satisfaction once we've resolved on the thing. Once the mast has appeared as a mast, everything's in order. And there's a certain sense that once, once I've seen it, I no longer have to look anymore. <laughs> right? There's a sense in which once I've identified the clear object, uh, my experience is off the hook. And, and I just trust that it's there. It appears to me as, the, as a real thing that has a real presence to it. It's the kind of thing that if I wanted to look further at, I can continue to walk and 
and see other sides of it, but I don't need to. And so there's this sense that uh, once I've achieved that sense of resolution, uh, experience, the experience and the object part ways. The object is standing there as an independent thing outside of me, and my experience is over here, and we, we, we don't have to interact anymore because I've established that the object is, is, is out there and I don't have anything to do with it anymore. And what Merleau-Ponty and Sartre, to some extent, are trying to remind us of by drawing attention to the ways in which we, our, our experience involves this active resolution to, to that state is that, that that achievement of that success, of that object, is an achievement. It's something we have to do. It's not, it's not a given. It's not taken for granted. It's an ongoing accomplishment. And in a way, even though we don't notice it, our eyes are constantly adjusting and, and formulating the world. And so uh, what appears to us as a world of easy, straight, clear things is, is not so clear when we take into account there are these processes running the show underneath. And I, I wanted to, I, I went on at length about that because I, I do feel that um, something of that, that project of trying to explore and uh, remind us that there's this world of indeterminacy that's uh, of tension that's underlying our experiences. We don't notice it always, but, but it really is constantly there, and, and the objective clear things we see are the product of that. Um, that there's something uh, about abstract painting, and Bourdois painting in particular, that, that highlights that. And um, so, so I, I was suggesting that with some of these earlier paintings, like even this one, for instance, um, I think this is a fairly highly abstract painting. Uh, I don't think I'd have any um, controversy over that. But there's still a lot of form here and a lot of settledness, despite the turbulence that I was describing in, in my earlier comments. There, there's still a sense of a circle. There's still a sense of a resolution. And, and even once you get into the whites and blacks and their play and you sort of feel like you can't really get a full handle on it, you always are safe because you know that there's a background to catch you you know that there's a, a, a kind of um, a, a sense where you can get a whole handle on it. It's contained and it's it's uh, a separate. It's separate from you. You can you can just as much step back from it as go into it. Right? And I think that that sense is starting to disappear here. You still have that background as well as I mentioned before. There's still there's still a sense of the more prominent painting in the front. It, which, you, which you can't help regarding as, in some sense, the foreground, it seems to me, even though there are interesting things going on in the, in the more flatly applied paint and so on. Um, but when you get to a painting like this, uh, you, you kind of feel like there's no end to it. You kind of feel like you, there's no place where you can get an easy sense of rest because uh, there, every inch is covered and there's no easy sense of foreground and background, it seems to me, here. Um, there's no sense of a, a centered piece. Now, one of the things that I find, uh, this, this one's actually up, at the, uh, up in the, uh, one of the Thompson Collection rooms at the moment. Uh, I urge you to check it out if you're interested. But one of the things that sticks out to me about this is that these, these big, big blocks of paint, like this one and up there, really take on a kind of presence of their own. And so there is a tendency for those things to, to in some sense, become figures, in some sense, to stand out. Um, there, there's a sense in which they, they sort of take on a presence of their own, in my mind. But I, but I do feel like in the black and white paintings, um, there is something different going on. Um, and so I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that just to close the section, and then I have one, one further section, a briefer one. Um, let me get to this 
I'm inclined to think that rather than trying to decide whether the white is background or not in this painting, you know, that, I think some critics have talked about that, you know, talk about flipping from seeing the white as the foreground or seeing the black as the background and which one is it and it seems like you can, you can sort of see it in a way that they oscillate, right? That the black becomes the receding background and the white is on the surface of it or vice versa. But, but it's always struck me that there's something not quite right about that. It seems to me that that oscillation doesn't quite, they, you know, they, it's there to some extent, but I do feel like there's something else going on here. And, and I have the sense that we're meant to uh, consider leaving behind the foreground background structure, or at least dwell with a, 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 an experience where that isn't prominent when, when we look at these kinds of paintings. So obviously there are black patches with distinct boundaries that separate them from the white. And so there is something like a figure of background at work. But I don't think it's an, I think that's kind of an external view on the painting. I don't think, uh, I don't think you're invited to focus on the black patches, as though you are, are to read the painting from the point of view of them as central. Um, in part, I think it's because they're black, and so they tend to recede, um, and so bespeak a kind of absence. And so it's weird to think of them as the figure because they, they sort of slip away from you. They're, they're a little bit like that, that experience that I was describing that Sartre has at the cafe and looking for his friend where you, you sort of look at it and it kind of dissolves in a way. There's something of that, I think, going on when you look at the blacks, uh, the black patches. Um, it's also because I think the forms that the black patches take, um, if, if you try to tr treat them as positive forms in their own right, don't have much internal integrity. They seem a bit like forms in transition, um, and indeed forms not going anywhere in particular. If they were red, for instance, they would suggest some sort of strong presence in their own right, um, an identity. Or, uh, but the, the blackness and also the, the shape, I, 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 sh I should say, um, tends away from that. They're not geometrical. They're not exactly organic. They're not particularly memorable. You know, they're, they're, they're not the sort of um, uh, very striking forms that, that uh, you sometimes see in abstract painting. Like if you look at Arshel Gorky's, um, some of his uh, images of this sort of wacky, uh, crazy, almost organic images, they, they really do have a kind of distinctive, striking character to them. But these black patches uh, don't, don't especially um, have a kind of internal integrity to them uh, that, that makes them feel like there's something substantial in their own right. And we also have the sense that the lines that create them, the lines that mark them out, are not final. Um, th and, there's, and that there's not, there's not any, any sort of uh, uh, inner form that's holding itself at bay. You know, we sort of feel like they're almost accidental creations um, and, and that the borders are still in being negotiated, especially if you see it up close, you really have the sense that there's a kind of strife between the white and the black. Uh, and and you, you really get the sense that, that the, the form that the black takes isn't exactly uh, uh, any final form. You just happen to see it, uh, a phase in, in an ongoing movement. It's almost like a series of waves coming in. If you're watching waves coming in onto, the, onto a shore, and you'll notice that with each wave, there's a, you know, there's a certain line that gets drawn. And it gets drawn in different places as the waves come in and out, or different waves, I should say, you know, would draw the line differently. And you get the sense that there is a, there is a boundary there, but it's not a very definite boundary. 
You know, there, there's a sense in which the, the line is, there's, there's, there's something responding to something real there, uh, but you never get the line itself. You never get the reality itself. You're just getting the sort of uh, constant effects of it. Uh, you, you never get it in its own right. And I think some of, so there, there might be more to say about that, and perhaps this can come up during the discussion, but it does seem to me that for that reason, um, oh, I should say one other thing, uh, that it, it, this might not come up so much so clearly on the image, but the black forms, the black patches, are also made up of patches in, within, and so they kind of repeat the structure of the, the white background. And so you kind of get the sense that they too are not a uniform thing, that they too are kind of pasted together, or have layers and are complex, and in that sense are, are very much uh, akin to the, to the, the white background. And, um, so I, I tend to think of this not as, I mean, there's an obvious way in which you can't escape noticing the difference between the white and the black, but it does seem to me that they, they really do recede into a kind of movement, into a kind of tension, and I do feel like there's something about that tension that's akin to the sort of tension I was talking about earlier, about that experience before seeing the masks or before your, your eyes resolve on the, on the distinct object. And just to finish off that, um, uh, Discussion. I, I wanted to draw attention to um, Bordois' notion of a paranoic screen, which he adopts from the Surrealists. Um, it's a surface which, when stared at lengthily, serves to fasten phantasms in a clear vision. And uh, he, he cites this famous quote from Leonardo da Vinci um, that, that Leonardo tells his pupils, apparently, you have at times contemplated spots on walls, ashes of a fireplace, clouds or streams, if you look attentively, you will discover in them admirable inventions which the genius of the painter can exploit to compose battles of animals and men, landscapes or monsters or other subjects which will bring you honor. And the, the interesting thing about that is uh, when you get past seeing it as a brick uh, and, and just resting in that figure, you know, resting in that sense, okay, it's a brick and I can leave it, it's, it's doing its thing, it's independent of me, when you get past that sense, it's almost as if a whole new world opens. And it seems like that's the basic idea of a paranoic screen. And, and I think that's, that's akin to what I was trying to say about, about getting past the sense of those black patches as being a figure in their own right or as being a space in their own right, that there's a certain way in which a, a, a world of dynamic flows starts to take over. And in contrast to that, I'm actually gonna come back to this quote later, in, in a minute, but just the second part of this quote, um, uh, Bordois says, in front of a pebble, you see it as round or rough pebble, and you pay no more attention to it. And it seems like that's the kind of thing that he's trying to avoid. You know, he's trying to embroil you in the painting rather than leave you something that you can detach yourself from. So um, just going on to my last section here, um, I, I, I want to focus on the paint, on the materiality of the paint a little bit. And so I'm just going to read through this last couple of couple of um, thoughts and then, and then open, open up the floor. When painting enters, enters on the path of abstraction and begins to free itself of the imperative to be faithful to objects and to objective space, what is left for it to do? In particular, what role is paint itself, the material liquid substance, to play if it need no longer efface its presence as paint for the sake of giving itself over to the presence of the object? Whenever one recognizes a face or a flower in a painting, it seems that in that moment, one is not attentive to the paint as paint. 
The paint is there on the canvas, and of course, there is a sense in which one sees it. But to the extent that one is seeing the face or the flower, it seems that one is not seeing the paint itself as a material presence on the canvas. Rather, this material presence is subsumed and effaced in its own right for the sake of enabling something else to become present. Of course, when we attend to the painted face as a face, the sensible material out of which the image is made is not effaced completely. A painted face, even if painted in a hyper-realist manner, has a different visual presence than a photographed face, for instance, at least to the extent that we are somehow visually alive to the painstaking painterly hand. And the different expressive ways of painting faces that painters use in their portraits are not completely lost on us when we attend to the distinctive facial qualities rather than expressly to the drama of paint occurring underneath. However, it does seem that the drama of the paint itself is subsumed into or put in the service of the presence of the face overall. It seems to me that when you look at a Cezanne portrait, there is a moment in which the various patches of color, quite blocky and fragmented, perhaps at first sight, disappear into the unity of the facial presence. And even in cases like de Kooning's highly abstract women paintings, where the flows of paint regularly assert themselves at the expense of maintaining any clear boundary between the woman depicted and her surroundings, for instance, there is still a tension at play between the presence of the woman and the presence of the paint in its own right. The presence and space of the body with its actual and potential movements is quite different from the aggressive gestures of paint application and the distinctive sort of space they generate. But what if the object painted, the figurative form with its thingly way of taking up space, is eliminated altogether? What is left to paint? In the color field paintings of Rothko, it seems that what is painted is color itself in some sense. And though there is an intimate relationship between the color and the materiality of the paint, there is an important sense in which, when we linger with a Rothko painting, we tend to leave behind the color's presence as paint and enter into the color itself, as though we somehow came to coincide with the hazy red field as such. And so here, too, the paint as paint is effaced for other effects. Against the traditional presumption that the actual paint on the canvas and the act of painting itself were to efface their distinctive presence for the sake of enabling determinate objects to make themselves present, Bordeaux came to treat the materiality of the paint itself as having the power to put us in touch with a more rudimentary subterranean reality than could be accessed in traditional pictorial or objective terms. Bordeaux came to think that any pictorial reference to familiar objects can only serve to conceal what he took to be the genuine reality of the painting, which he called a plastic reality. As he wrote in Global Refusal, I thought I had that quote. I'll just read it, excuse me. Plastic reality, the only reality of the work, stays hidden under a mass of illusions, woman, chair, smile, gown, etc. Unknown, out of reach, completely missed, either as a whole or in detail. Only the illusionistic aspect of the picture is perceived, and that because it is already familiar. And this is, oh, it was that other quote about the pebble, so excuse me, I should have it. In front of a pebble, you see it as a round and rough pebble, 
and you pay no more attention to it. It's especially that first part, though, that I want to focus on now, the plastic reality, the only reality of the work, stays hidden under a mass of illusions, unknown, out of reach, completely missed. Bourdois sought above, sought above all to explore this domain of plastic reality through his painting. And it seems clear that for him, this project eventually took the form of an investigation of the meaning inherent in the plasticity of paint itself. Unlike the meaning of an intellectual idea, which it seems can be said in a number of different ways and in a number of different languages, the sort of meaning at play in the flows of paint cannot be detached from the distinctive kind of materiality that is peculiar to paint on canvas. Bourdois seemed fascinated with paint's capacity to move and spread and mark boundaries in its own distinctive ways. And he was oriented towards discovering and revealing a kind of living tactile meaning that inheres in the paint's distinctive behavior. Of course, paint, as a liquid substance, has no obvious shape or spatial form peculiar to itself. And whatever particular shape or form it has in any given instance is imposed on it from without. And in that sense, you can't straightforwardly paint paint. For any act of painting is going to impose a form onto the paint that is not internal to it. Simply squeezing the paint out of the tube onto a canvas or having it pile up in little heaps, as we sometimes find in Dubuffet's paintings, for instance, and there's, there's a painting in the... Um, currently up, a Dubuffet painting that has a big squirt of paint in the middle of it, um, or dripping and splattering it, as, on, as Pollock does, splattering it on, rather, as Pollock does, seems to say more about the process of shaping the paint than about the paint itself. And yet, Bourdois' way of painting often seems to follow rather than lead the paint's own flows and resistances, as though he st stood back to bear witness to the ways that the paint itself delineate space in its interactions with the other paint already on the surface. Certainly, Bourdois' hand kicks off the process. But one gets the sense that while in the midst of spreading the paint on the canvas, Bourdois gives himself over to the paint's distinctive flow and resistance, rather than simply seeing through an expressive intention determined in advance. It is perhaps in this sense that his paintings escape him. As he, as he described in one of those earlier quotations that I read. Indeed, it seems clear that the meaning that inheres in the paint is one that is grasped in large part by the moving body and is fundamentally tactile rather than purely visual. As we have seen in the discussion of the visual figure ground, ground structure, it seems typical of visual experience that it isolates, that it holds its objects apart from the rest of the visual sphere in such a way as to create the sense that the object is a self-contained, self-sufficient thing, separate from its surroundings and from our experience of it. But as I've suggested, it is precisely this sense of the independence of the figure that Bourdois seems to challenge. When we tap into the distinct flows of paint, each with its own area and vector, but also dynamically related to those around it, we easily get caught up in the local dramas and lose sight of any overarching unified whole to which it contributes. This immersion in the local dramas, however, does not seem like a distraction from some more comprehensive, all-at-once view. For though our more global views of the painting are significant, it is doubtful whether the, that view is such as to encompass and completely incorporate in itself all of the local dynamics, 
these local dynamics are to some extent independent of the whole, locked in their opacity and particularity, you might say. So I'm thinking here, you know, I drew attention earlier to how there's a kind of fragile dynamism at work when you see the painting as a whole. But I do think that it requires of you that you enter into the parts. And when you're in the parts, that, that sense of its whole you know, is, is, is less significant. You sort of feel like you're, you're riding the waves of particular paint uh, 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 spreads. I don't know what else to call them. Um, and and, and that feel, it feels like that's what the paint beckons you to do. It doesn't feel like you're distracted from something more global when, when you're accessing the painting at that more minute level. It is though we were feeling out a large object without being able to see it with our eyes. And as a result, we never quite get to the point of hitting upon a single comprehensive unity that synthesized all of the various dynamic tactile experiences into it. As we feel out the painting in this way, we feel we are implicated in the momentum of a situation that exceeds us, a situation that we can never fully get a comprehensive handle on. It is as though we enter into the wave of paint bodily and follow it somewhat blindly as it spreads itself with no apparent design until it meets, meets with an opposing flow. I think it's not so much the act of painting itself that we are tapping into, but rather a kind of motor significance lodged within the materiality of the paint. We witness the birth of lines and ridges as events whose deeper origins are concealed from us. And just as a closing note, I wanted to just consider this last quotation from Merleau-Ponty. Like the natural thing, the painting has to be seen and not defined. Nevertheless, it cannot lay claim to the same substantiality as the natural thing. We feel that it is put together by design, that in its significance, or that in it, significance precedes existence and clothes itself in only the minimum of matter necessary for its communication. Once a painting is torn up, we have in our hands nothing but pieces of daubed canvas. But if we break up a stone and then further break up the fragments, the pieces remaining are still pieces of stone. The real lends itself to unending exploration. It is inexhaustible. And we have this same sentiment expressed by, oh, uh, by Bourdois. Let me just get this picture back here. Uh, Bourdois' quote is, the object in itself is, un is ungraspable, inexhaustible. So that same sort of idea. But I wanted to suggest that, you know, in that, in that quote, Merleau-Ponty is um, contrasting painting with reality and uh, uh, suggesting that with painting, you know, there's something of the substantial presence of reality, but it's not quite the same, in part because uh, you sort of feel like there's something inexhaustible about things about natural things, that when you break them open, there's just more thing to see. And if you break those parts open, there's just more thing to see. And you never quite get to the bottom of it. Whereas when you, you imagine tearing apart a painting, you sort of feel like you're just left with shreds that don't have any significance. And, and I just wanted to leave you with the thought that it's possible that in, um, with Bourdois' paintings, especially you know, the black and white paintings, with very thickly applied paints and there's all sorts of layers, that there is a sense in which 
you'd want to break them open and, and, and that the sides that you would see would be significant. There is a sense in which the painting has become something of an object, that it has become something of a, a kind of three-dimensional thing in its own right, that, that um, you, you can't really exhaust. There's something of that sense, like I don't mean that literally, I guess I just mean to say that there is a sense that um, you're, you're tapping into something that is inherently exceeds you. And I think that's part of the experience that, that Bourdois was trying to capture um, and uh, it, by focusing on the materiality of the paint. So thank you very much. If you'd like to invite questions oh, yes, now. We have two handheld microphones. Um, we, we record the questions because otherwise the answers don't make sense when we're podcasting. So if you have a question, let, let us know. Thank you so much. Um, I I have a question about the very first quote that you showed us, where Bourdieu is saying that his painting is becoming wider and wider mm -hmm. and more and more objective. And I was wondering about um, the use of objective here. Is he referring to um, the paint as being the object, or what does it mean exactly? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I mean, my, my real answer is I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, that's, it's one of the most cited quotations in, in the scholarship that I've read. So people seem to think it's important, but in, to my mind, no one has really explained what that means to me. Um, and and Bourdois, in reading the context of his, uh, this comes in the context of an interview that he gave uh, uh, a few years, a couple years before he died, and um, he, doesn't, he doesn't further explain. Um, my guess uh, is that what he's talking about is moving back to a sense of, um, a white background that, that is, forms the basic ground upon which things can appear. And as I've argued, there, you know, there's really a, an attempt to challenge that basic sense of, of a figure on a background. But my sense is that it's, it's really the move to a sort of a sense of the, you know, something like the white canvas again upon which objects sit. Now, obviously, he's meaning, if I'm right about that, he's obviously meaning that in a very uh, sort of skewed way in this context. But I, I, think, I think that might be what he's trying to refer to there. But uh, if you had a better guess, I'd, I'd be interested to hear it. I, I, I don't really, I'm not confident about that. Not to <clears throat> take issue with Merleau-Ponty, but if you take a rock and break it up and you get little rocks, I get that. But if you take a painting and break it up, you get little paintings. And um, uh, if, yeah. it's, if it's an objective work, if it's a scene of a, a flower or people in a park, then I agree with him. But if it's an abstract piece, I mean, if you take any chunk of an abstract painting, it is in itself an abstract painting. So I don't, I don't know that I agree with Merleau-Ponty on that, uh, because in the same vein that a rock becomes but tinier rocks, um, the painting, a larger painting, broken up into pieces is just in itself um, yeah. similar actions. Yeah, I suppose there's something right about that. And, and uh, he probably didn't have abstract painting in mind in particular uh, in, in that, in that um, quote. Um, but I do think that, uh, I guess I was trying to make the case that, there, that 
what you're saying is more true of something like Bourdois than it is of some other abstract painters where, uh, paintings, where, where there is something like um, an overall form that it takes or an overall uh, gestural, a lyrical gesture that seems central. And if you tore that up, yes, you'd have bits of paint on a piece of paper, but, but you wouldn't have, that, that gesture would be lost or, or that, that form would be lost. And, and I, you know, I think that's literally true with the board wall, though I was trying to suggest that if you took, you know, maybe big fragments off, you'd still have a rich text because there is this local significance to, to each part and, and a local significance that isn't simply merged into a more global significance that you'd be destroying by ripping it. So, so I, I suppose you're right uh, in a general sense, uh, but I do think there's an important difference between the, the fragment of paint on a canvas um, that, that uh, uh, is, is substantially different than the, the role that it played in the whole because it was functioning as part of a gesture that's no longer visible. I think that's still lost and that's still erased because, because part of the way that the meaning functions in that case is much more related to the gesture, to the movement, to the form that appears rather than to the materiality itself. And so the, the greater the painting focuses on the materiality, the more what you said is the case I, I'm suggesting. Um, I wanted to agree with something that you said, and, and then, uh, but ask if we could push it a little bit f further. Um, this notion of vertigo, I think, is very interesting, and it, and it seems very true of these kinds of paintings, that when we take away the obvious figural quality, we don't know what we're seeing. Um, and so that makes our experience of, of seeing sometimes troubling. Like, it can be frustrating to look at a painting and think, what is this? Or, yeah. You know, it's very easy to see a, a recognizable picture of a cow in a field or something, you know what it is. Uh, but, but the thing that's, that, that I'm thinking that is kind of interesting here is that there certainly are abstract paintings that might provoke in me a kind of feeling of anxiety or, or something like that. And that, that I would associate very closely with the notion of vertigo. I, might, I can imagine maybe certain Richter paintings do that, various other ones do. But the thing that's interesting here is that these white and black paintings to me seem very friendly. You know, I mean, and I was noticing this last remark here, the uh, emotional recognition provoked by the sensation of an abundant synthesis. Now, I don't know what he means by that, but that notion of abundance actually did resonate for me with what I saw as we looked at that one painting for quite a while. And it, it just seems so, uh, so full and so, um, uh, it didn't seem, it didn't strike me as particularly threatening. Yeah. So I just wonder if you have any thought about that. Uh, uh, in the case of these, well, first of all, I guess I wonder if you agree with me, and if you don't, that would be interesting. If you do, I wonder if you have any thought about that difference between the being provoked to a kind of anxiety or being, being provoked to a kind of uh, warmth or friendship yeah. in the work. I think I do share your sense that, um, that there's nothing ominous or, or you know, that, that that's not... There's no threat. There's no sense of um, dissolution or something that's that's on the verge. And I, and I think that's in part because you you kind of get the sense that although things don't, if I'm right to say that things don't quite cohere into sort of a, a comprehensive synthesis, that that there, you're given enough to suggest that uh, the painting is leading you somewhere, and and you sort of feel like you're on the way somewhere, even though you haven't got there and won't ever get there, perhaps. Um, and so there, there's a kind of forward-leaning 
quality to it that suggests that um, uh, you're on the way. And I, 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 maybe that's what gives me the sense of, of that, that sense of abundance or, or I, I think the French word is generous, you know, generosity or something like that. It's, 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 take, it's, it's giving you something. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, uh, allowing you to, it's carrying you or something like that. Um, uh, I'm not sure about that. I guess, I guess, you know, just a small thought, and this, this is, I think doesn't get to the substance of it, but it might be where I would start to, to respond to the bigger issue about whether there might be an important difference between those two experiences of vertigo if, if in fact, the latter, the, the more friendly type is, is vertigo properly. Um, I, I guess it, uh, it seems like there's something um, vertiginous in, in the negative sense where you experience the vertigo, vertigo as, a, as a, a loss of something that you are counting on uh, or, or as, a, as a, a threatening of a foothold that, that you are relying on. Um, but, but if you can reconcile yourself to that lack of footholds and, and see that as the space in which life operates and that there's, there's no other dimension uh, to, to seek after, that that could be quite liberating. That, that reconciling yourself to that can be quite liberating and quite um, uh, kind of spontaneous creative space that you can enter. And so I, I, I tended to think that that's, that's the kind of vertigo that... that, that um, of abundance, you know, that, that Bourdois might be talking about, but that's just a small thought. I'm not sure about that. I should think about that further. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm not sure of the time periods um, exactly, but uh, Kazimir Malevich, uh, um, father of non-objective art, one of the grandfathers, I guess, um, would he have been prior to this? Because, like, the way I read that, is though these pictures have become wider and wider and more objective, in, in referring to non-objective art, truly non-objective art, is it is it not that because they're becoming wider and wider, they th those white parts of the painting almost become as objects? Because then he's saying, however, even though those white parts are becoming more objective, so therefore it's maybe not a completely non-objective piece in some ways. He says still when I see around me works with very clear, and I had the word very clear and precise meaning. Um, anyway, that, that's the way I would read it. I wondered what you thought about that. Would, would those terms, um, at the time that Paul-Emile Bourdieu was writing that, would that term non-objective have been a familiar one that he would have used? Um, I mean, it, was, it would have been part of uh, a general vocabulary that was available, but but it, it strikes me that he is using the word objective there in a very peculiar sense. Like I think he's not meaning to reference that that background tradition that I think you're putting your finger on. Like I think he's, I think he's saying in a fairly offhanded way, there's something sort of more black and white about my paintings. You know, like there there's something more clear and precise it seems about my paintings. And if you look at, uh, for instance, some of Klein's paintings, which were made around the same time, these these black gestures on white background. There's something sort of uh, poignant and clear about them, and and the gestures are very expressive and and very um, uh, solid in a way. And I suspect that when he's talking about, uh, I, I see around me works with a clear and precise meaning, whether expressionistic or gestural. I I I take it that he's thinking of works like that. There's you know these very clear graphic images, um, and he I think he's trying to say that. 
nevertheless, his, his works seem more complex, even though they, his works share something in common, the black and white works in particular share something in common with those, that, that there's something more complex going on in his. That's, that's, my, that's my read on it. Um, I was really struck by your discussion uh, of the, the movement from a background where you could sort of escape and have a uh, circumscribe the object that you're looking at um, to uh, uh, paintings that don't have that kind of escape where you have to be constantly engaged. And I was thinking you had talked a lot about that in, in sort of perceptual terms and our ability to identify something. Oh, that's a boat. Now I don't have to pay any more attention to it because I've solved it. I know what it is. Um, and sort of being able to leave it. And I was thinking, going back to the beginning of your talk about how uh, um, it's not just in the perceptual field that that kind of thing happens, but just in life and your engagement, you know, your struggle to live. So you're, you're involved in a relationship and you want to know what, like, what is this thing that I'm involved in? And there's uh, a way in which if you can say, what is this thing? Oh, we're meant to get married. We're married. And name it. There, there is a kind of relief that comes from that and potentially a withdrawal. Like, oh, now I know what this is. Right. We're married. That's the end of it's my <laughs> struggle to figure out, yeah, to, to sort of work on it. And so, <laughs> so just thinking about that, I was thinking... Um, <laughs> um, Getting married is the beginning of divorce. Is what right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking how, um, how difficult it is if you don't allow that circumscription, how you feel like this is constantly has to be in question for you and something that you're working at. Right? And I guess this is going back to the talk about anxiety. Um, I mean, just, just to stick with the idea of relationships for a bit, I was thinking... But like, yeah, I want to be in relationships where I keep working at things, but I don't want to be in a relationship where it just feels relentless, like I never have any resting place yeah. or any standing ground, right? Um, and so I wondered whether, to go back to this idea of sort of the happy, friendly character of these, whether there might be a, a, a new kind, a new sense of resting place, not a resting place that involves circumscription and, and saying, I know what this is, now I can detach from it, but some other sense of, I mean, to use your word, a, a foothold or a, or a place to, where you feel like you can have ground to stand on and you're not just swimming around. Because I, mean, I actually do feel like uh, my first experience, at least, I haven't spent a lot of time with Bourdois, but my first experience is I don't know where to start, I don't know where to end. There is kind of a swimming relentlessness. But on the other hand, this comment about it being kind of friendly that makes sense to me too. And so I just wondered whether there might be a, a sense of resting, a new sense of resting yeah. place there. I, I, I've been suspecting that. And, and uh, you know, one of the things, I may, I've made some contrasts between these paintings and some Pollock paintings and, um, and some Dubuffet paintings. And, and I think one of the things that you sometimes see in the, in the drip paintings in Pollock and in, Dubuffet has a series called uh, Texturology paintings that are similar in the sense that they just, there's a, just a drip, you know, paint drips that sort of cover the whole surface of the painting, and and there's no there's no sense, th there's no footholds in those paintings, or there's you know you you there's no stopping points, you, you, and and you also get the sense that the the images depicted just keep going beyond the canvas. You're just seeing a small fragment of it, and there, there's no way in which you feel uh, uh, contained by it or or involved in any determinate situation, right? It sort of feels like you're in touch with something that that doesn't 
present any stopping points or, or, or holding spaces. And I think that although I've been suggesting that covering the whole surface with paint and, and that these forms kind of uh, don't cohere into any recognizable uh, uh, synthesis, um, despite th those claims, I, I do feel like there's some sort of overall integrity that, that doesn't send you off the canvas, for instance, in that way, that doesn't, that doesn't um, uh, uh, lead to the sense of infinite deferral. I'm never going to quite get resolved. It's always going to be. So there's, there's indeterminacy, but there's a kind of determinacy, uh, enough determinacy to, to sort of allow you to be there and, 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 and reside there and inhabit it, I think. Um, so, so I suspect that, that there's something like that uh, in, li in life, too, like, I, I guess I was stressing the indeterminacy of things, and what, you know, I should have had an, an, a next section that stressed how that indeterminacy is always contextualized by certain kinds of determinacy, in a way, um, because there's a way in which uh, uh, we also do experience sort of some resolutions here, and the resolutions bring us to the next space and to the next space, and without that, uh, I think we would just be kind of swimming and, and uh, um, lost and anxious in the way you're talking about and, and that John was talking about, John Russell, earlier in the earlier question. I think we have time for one last quick question from over there. Hello, Dr. Sivala. Hi there. Um, this, is, this is a bit of a two-part question. It touches upon the answer that you just gave um, dealing with indeterminacy. Um, I wonder though, um, and, and also the quote that we were addressing earlier regarding objectivity. I wonder whether um, by objectivity, he means, if perhaps we could take this from a slightly more existential standpoint, an appreciation of the immense subjectivity of everything, or perhaps even intersubjectivity. And I wonder whether by, you know, as um, Debussy said, simplicity being the final achievement, whether the more sparse and simplistic something is the closer it comes to being, you know, on almost a, a tabula rasa for, for any kind of um, engagement on any level. And I guess this leads me to um, the, the, the question, which is when we look at um, a bourgeois painting as opposed to, for example, um, hyperrealism or um, I mean, just, just an example I saw earlier tonight at the AGO, um, a, a Rubens uh, painting depicting the slaughter of, of babies. It's very specific in the aesthetic response that it elicits. And I wonder whether um, part of the, part of the, um, the, what makes Bourdois so engaging is that it, in fact, comes closer to an objective reality because it doesn't ask us or doesn't set any really firm foundations as to what it wants us to take from it. And whether it, it does, in fact, come closer to what one could be called an, ex an experienced reality, a, a ready at hand, or... Yeah, yeah I think the, the largest you know, potential for annihilation of search and nothingness. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what to make about that last uh, little slip, slip in there. But, um, but I think the spirit of what you're saying, I, I think is, you know, very much along the lines of what I've been suggesting, that, that 
Um, you know, I, I, I portrayed existentialism as, as uh, um, interested in criticizing and taking issue with certain basic assumptions that we make and that maybe we have to make about the nature of reality being this kind of objective sphere, fully, fully transparent to us and so on, or transparent in principle at least and fully worked out. Um, and that existentialism treats that as a kind of, reveals that as a kind of coping mechanism or something like that. And, and, that, and that the real truth is that things aren't so clear and things, things are much messier and we're embroiled in much more um, incoherent kinds of situations and so on. And so there is a certain sense in which revealing that and coming to terms with that is, is being closer to reality, uh, is being more honest, more genuine. And, and, I, and I, I think you're using the word objective in that sense, at least to capture that the real thing that exists is that subjective, um, or the thing that's mixed with our subjective perspectives, the thing that we can't fully uh, extricate our, our, our perspectives from. That's what exists. There's not something outside of us, independent of us. Uh, uh, so, so I think if, if his painting does what, I, what I'm suggesting, that it does put us in touch with that, I think it is objective in that sense. I, don't sus I suspect that's not what he means by the word in that quote, but, but I do think, in, from, if I've got your question right, that that's, that is true to what he intends in the larger scheme of things. I think at that point, David, I'm going to thank you so much for a thoughtful presentation. And it just makes me realize, you know, when you look at people in the galleries looking at Baudoir, they will do an entire gallery in a minute. And, you know, just how rewarding it is when you spend time. And we in the education department, our, our job is to sort of try and connect people in art and try and help people get meaning from these objects. And, you know, what can we do in the galleries to get people to spend three minutes even, or 10 minutes, and actually come and just look at one piece of art and spend time. So thank you very much indeed, David. And thank you also for your good questions, because, I mean, that's wonderful to hear the discussion going. I, I would just quickly like to tell you about a, a couple of things we have coming up. Next week on Friday, the 24th, we are continuing our Art of Healing, Medical Practitioners and Artists in Duet. And the subject next week is plagues. And I, we have an epidemiologist coming, uh, Kate Rossiter. And she'll be in conversation with artist Robert Hool. And they'll be talking about all kinds of plagues, real plagues, philosophical plagues, society's responses to plagues. I know Robert Hool is going to talk about his experience with residential schools for the first time. Um, the week after that, we have a ship model curator, Simon Stevens coming from England, and he's going to be talking about the, Tintin, the Tantan film that's just out. There is, we have three models in our ship model collection that that film actually drew on, that the, you know, the artist um, drew on. And the week after that, on March 7th, we have Christopher Dudney, who's going to give some very personal stories. He's an author, many of you may know. Very personal stories about Jack Chambers. So please come to some of those as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.